0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Drazer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 78. Huge program this week. I'm so thrilled to be able to introduce my guest. I'm, I'm a longtime fan of his work, and I'm sure many, many, many of you listeners out there are as well. Before I can get to that, let me do my pitch for Counterpunch. Uh, a great way to support the project is to get a subscription to that print magazine. Print is dinosaur, it's, it's a dying medium. There are so few places that are still publishing. On paper, imagine that counterpunch is one of them. Uh, a great way to support counterpunch: get that subscription to the magazine. You'll be glad that you did. Let them pile up next to your next to your nightstand, next to your toilet, whatever works for you. You know. Um, also, giving positive reviews to this show on iTunes, on Google Play Store, all the other places where podcasts can be found, always very appreciated. Um, so, leaving that truncated introduction aside, I want to introduce my guest. Uh, you probably all know him He is Chris Hedges He is, uh, well I don't mean to uh, embarrass him when I say this But one of the most prominent voices we have on the left uh, Certainly someone whose columns I read every single week religiously And um, I'm just so thrilled to have him on the show uh, Chris's work you can find of course every week in Truth Dig. You can also find him on RT America And all over the place, syndicated everywhere Chris Hedges, welcome to Counterpunch Radio
1: Thank you Eric
0: so, we have, we have a lot to cover, and I, I have to just start out with the most obvious question of all, because there is a certain degree of uh, trauma, uh, realization, uh, you know, epiphany, if you will, that a lot of people have gone through these last few months. Uh, certainly a trauma for those people who consider themselves progressive, certainly uh, ushering in a new period. So, I, I want to just ask you very quickly, what, do you, what is your take from the first few weeks, the first couple months of the Trump administration, both in terms of the politics and especially in terms of the impact on the American psyche. How do you read this?
1: Well, first in terms of the politics. um, What Trump is doing, of course, is uh, putting into place this right-wing, reactionary, corporate agenda that has been... Uh, part of the, uh, the the foundation, the ideological foundation of groups like the Heritage Foundation and others. Uh, and, and he's just opened the floodgates. So uh, there's no restraint left. This is something that has been uh, in process for over four decades, a reaction largely to the 60s. Uh, so he's establishing a kleptocracy, not only in terms of his own personal wealth and his family's wealth, and he will steal with abandon and make all sorts of foreign deals violating the Emolument Clause, but also a kleptocracy in terms of corporations being able to come in and just cannibalize the federal budget. You're seeing that, for instance, in the Department of Education where he's talking about giving $20 billion dollars in vouchers. Well, where is that going to go? It's going to go to the kind of for-profit charter schools that Betsy DeVos has implanted all over Michigan uh, or to Christian schools. Um, So we are seeing, and Karl Marx wrote about this, that this final stage of capitalism when capital is no longer able to generate the same kind of profits through expansion. And in essence, cannibalizes the host, Uh, and and that's what's—that's what we're undergoing. It's just turbocharged under Trump. It's been going on for a long time, but now there's just no impediments left.
0: There's no doubt. And it's an interesting analogy. You said cannibalizing the host, because uh, uh, I guess what was that like a year, year and a half ago when I had uh, Michael Hudson on this program. His book was titled Killing the Host. And it's essentially the same argument that he's making about late stage capitalism. And it's certainly uh, turbocharger on steroids uh, here in the in the uh, Trump era. And I think that it's a very important point to make because, you know, I, I hear it oftentimes people will say, well, you know, Trump it's not really any different. Obama had Wall Street people. Clinton had Wall Street people. But and and while that's true, of course, and, and Bush as well, obviously, while that's true, it does seem that we've reached a new level of this sort of nakedly transparent corporate rule, which I mean, if we were to take Mussolini's definition would fit quite nicely with the fascist corporate state.
1: Yes. I mean, I, I think that that really what's happened is the Civility has been removed. That that the corporate state has been predatory for a long time and enabled by both the Democratic and Republican parties, but they had that veneer
0: yeah.
1: of, uh, of you know politeness, and that's gone. Uh, now it's just the crude, raw, grotesque visage of 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 a kleptocracy and 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 a corporate system of pillaging. Uh, and and so Trump is kind of the natural denouement of that process. And, and, and you had people turn on the Obamas and the Clintons and the Bidens and the Pelosi's, all these figures who, in many ways, were just as venal, more sophisticated, perhaps, than Trump, but uh, just as dishonest, just as corrupt. Uh, but they did it Uh, while paying linguistic deference to institutions that were no longer democratic, um, but that, that played an important role in the political theater. And people just got tired of it, and they saw through it. And Trump came through and essentially called out these people for their duplicity and their hypocrisy, and called out these dysfunctional institutions for what they were. Unfortunately, of course, he's a kind of proto-fascist, right-wing populist. But the sentiments that he unleashed, at least towards the ruling elites, both in the Republican and the Democratic Party, and the institutions that long stopped serving the governed, uh, and And serve the interests of corporate power, all of that uh, was quite welcome among a huge section of the electorate. And Bernie Sanders, of course, did did uh, did much the same. And we saw insurgencies in in both of the parties uh, built around that neoliberal agenda uh, that has essentially eviscerated our democratic institutions, created, an oligarchic, corporate, global ruling elite, uh, and 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 seized all of the levers of power to render the citizenry impotent.
0: No doubt. And, and I think it's probably best illustrated, the point that you were making, uh, best illustrated by uh, if you take a look at uh, Bill Clinton or George Bush or Barack Obama. I mean, their their pretexts for war making were things like humanitarian intervention and the need for democracy and the removal of dictators and so forth, where if you actually listen to what Trump says, aside from the hollow rhetoric about not being interested in in regime change, he's uh, he talks about things quite bluntly, stealing the oil, stealing the resources. How does this benefit us? Again, it's it's imperialism by another name, but there is a sort of nakedly brutal uh, sort of 19th century or 18th century attitude about the imperialism that is something I think unique with Trump.
1: Well, the attitude is the same. The difference is the rhetoric. Right. So Obama or Clinton or, you know, they're all talking about bringing liberty to Iraq or liberating the women of Afghanistan. But, of course, uh, what this is really about is, in the case of Iraq, the seizure of uh, natural resources, but also the profits within the war industry, Raytheon, Halliburton. That's the only reason these wars are being continued. That's the only reason NATO was expanded up to the doorstep of Russia, not because it had anything to do with national security or even makes any sense. Um, But they're huge markets that they— need perpetuated. And that is really fueling the kind of drive within the establishment for an antagonistic relationship with Russia, because there are billions and billions of dollars to be made uh, from that. And uh, and Obama served those interests, uh, and Trump serves those interests. The difference is uh, that Trump is, in some perverse way, more honest about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think the other one of the other differences is in uh, at least within the military-industrial complex and within the apparatus of the state where his support base lies, because there's obviously a tension that we've seen kind of bubbling over between, say, uh, intelligence on the civilian side, particularly the CIA, versus intelligence on the military sides, such as the DIA, where Michael Flynn came from, and similarly, you see so many generals, so many. Uh, embedded figures within the military structure, military apparatus that back Trump. And so in some ways, you could say that Trump has really become sort of the battlefield upon which elements of the ruling establishment or the deep state or whatever you want to say are fighting it out. At least that's been my argument and how I've sort of pushed back against what I think is a overly simplistic narrative of the quote unquote deep state at war with Trump.
1: Well, the deep state is delivering a message to Trump uh, as to who's in charge. And Trump, who has no real belief system or even ideology of his own, is going to bend to the deep state. And, uh, and, and the, the big issue is on Russia. Uh, they're, there's, they're, they are just too invested, the war industry, into a, a hostile relationship with Russia. Uh, to let Trump do anything to to damage that, and and uh, I suspect that, uh, like all presidents, Republican and Democrat, Bush, Obama, Clinton, he will dance to the tune that the deep state deep state plays. Uh, so, uh, on some issues, as you point out, they converge in terms of military expansion, in terms of internal security, increasing. Uh, the The border patrol police and uh, homeland security and others all of that is uh, is uh a gift to the security and surveillance apparatus um, but there are just a few adjustments that have to be made, and I think that 's what we 're seeing as we watch this tension between the deep state and the white house
0: we, you know and and all of those things that you 're pointing out that I was mentioning is why it's it 's so. Uh, difficult for me to believe that there are people, including politically savvy people, who watch this campaign and and honestly believe that Trump was going to be a, a legitimate threat to the military-industrial complex, to the war-making powers. I think that rather Trump represents seemingly just a shift of rhetoric and a shift of some tactics, but it's really all the same. And in fact, if you look at the Obama administration policy, I mean, what was the centerpiece of their of their foreign policy strategy? It was the pivot to Asia, and similarly with Trump, you see the way that he's painted China as the big villain on the block, uh, softer on Russia, harder on China. so it's really just a shifting of priorities rather than any kind of substantive change in u s foreign policy.:
1: Yeah, I think that's right, although Trump may be even more aggressive. Given Bannon's belief in the inevitability of the clash of civilizations or race wars. And it's even worse than that, because Bannon, like most fascists, believes in the regeneration or rebirth and the moral purity of the nation through industrial violence, through catastrophic war. Um, And uh, so you will see I think an even more aggressive posture with perhaps even less responsibility or understanding of global power in the Trump White House, especially as long as Bannon is there.
0: Indeed. And and again, uh, we see sort of this this convergence between the ideological side with Bannon, as you were just mentioning, and then the, uh, you know, the economic sort of parasitical uh, extractive side, particularly somebody like a Tillerson, because as we know, the South China Sea is one of the largest energy deposits still untapped anywhere in the world. So there are both uh, strategic and ideological reasons why the Trump administration, with their sort of nakedly imperialist policy is going so strong so so aggressively towards china
1: yeah that's right and and i think it's a racial element too yes this is supposition but i I think that part of the reason bannon is more sympathetic to the russians is because they're white
0: i totally agree Absolutely, I think that there's no doubt about that. And certainly, if you read or if you if you watch any of Bannon's speeches or you read transcripts of them, I mean, some of it looks like it came straight out of the futurist manifesto from Marinetti or from you know Evola or from any of the really you know the the, the giants of uh, fascist thought of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, he. I mean, these people function the same way the uh, ideologues. Uh, who Who sort of lent a veneer of uh, kind of academic credibility to fascism? Uh, so so they're, they're these pseudo intellectuals uh, who uh, essentially justify uh, white supremacy, uh, a, a form of race war, uh, you know, these figures like Alfred, Alfred Rosenberg or Paul de la Garde, the, all of these figures that gave this veneer to the racist conspiracy theories, the hyper-nationalism, the hatred for culture, uh, the lust for domination through violence, the expansion of empire, uh, these figures, some of whom you mentioned, function. Uh, in precisely the same way for someone like Banner, Bannon or, or, or Miller or some of these other figures in the White House.
0: You know, one of the other things that's come up in, in previous episodes on this show and, and something interesting to consider, I'd I'd love to get your take on it, is this question of revolution and whether or not the left really has a monopoly on, on the term revolution or on being a revolutionary, because I've seen some people argue quite convincingly, I would say, that Bannon really sees himself as a revolutionary, just a revolutionary of the right, somebody who also wants to destroy the institutions of power and remake them in his own image or in the image of his ideal state. So uh, what's your take on that? I mean, does, does, is there such a thing as right-wing or fascist revolutionary politics?
1: Well, that's, that's the question. Do you consider Lenin a revolutionary? Um, you read Adam Ullman's great biography of Lenin, Bolsheviks, and he calls him uh, a counter-revolutionary, uh, that you had a revolution in Russia and you had the Bolsheviks or the vanguard, and Bannon certainly identifies with that idea of the Leninist vanguard, as ca- carrying out uh, in October a kind of pooch that destroyed the Soviets and whatever autonomy was there. We don't have an anarchist history virtually, unless you want to count Victor Serge of the uh, Russian Revolution, because almost all the anarchists were executed. So. I think Bannon is very much in that mold um, of, and, and Ullman also says, the only people Lenin, Lenin despised intellectuals, the only people he ever felt comfortable around were capitalists, uh, because of course he built a kind of state capitalism. So I think Bannon comes out of that counter-revolutionary strain. Uh, Marx certainly called uh, unfettered capitalism a revolutionary force. Uh, in a sense that it that it has no self-imposed limits in terms of exploitation. And once you remove external impediments, it will commodify everything, uh, human beings, the natural world, until exhaustion or collapse. Polanyi writes about this in The Great Transformation. So I think Bannon comes out of that mold. Uh, I'm not sure I would call it revolutionary I think it's counter uh deeply anti-democratic in the same way the Bolshevik Party was anti-democratic um, and and so I I I don't think it's accidental that he uses the word vanguard I think he I think it's a it's a, a, a Leninist kind of mentality uh, that works on behalf of global, capitalism in the same way that Lenin worked on behalf of state capitalism in the old Soviet Union.
0: Probably could spend an entire show uh, debating that subject, but I I do want to ask you uh, about something else that I think is really of paramount importance. And that is this, uh, this, Idea that hopefully is becoming more and more uh, embedded in the, you know, in the in our general psyche in the U.S., namely the continuity of policy, the continuity of empire, because, you know, I, of course, remember, you know, when I was when I was really getting into political activism uh, in the time leading up to the Iraq war, it really felt to me at the time as a college kid that there was a huge difference, right, that, that that the Republicans and the Democrats were so different. The policies were so different. And I had no issues standing with Democrats and waving signs with them and so forth. And as as the Obama administration came in, a lot of that mythology 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 really began to be stripped away, at least for me, and I think for a lot of other people who came of age at the same time. And now that we see Trump, another, you know, maybe an inverse form of hope and change, right? The mirror image of hope and change from the right. And we still see these policies. I wonder, is this idea of an imperial system, one that is not beholden to administrations, is this becoming more popularized? Or are we simply replaying the same cycle every eight to 16 years.
1: Well, the empire kind of works on autopilot and and there's no, at this point, no way to disrupt the momentum of the military machine in the war industry. You can't do it. I mean, Bernie Sanders didn't want to talk about it when he ran for, uh, in the primaries, he wasn't going to talk about empire. He wasn't going to talk about the military because, there's no way that you can confront the power and the reach of the war industry which and and this is of course what destroys all democracies whether it was ancient Greece or Rome or you the Austro-Hungarian empire you expand uh, beyond your capacity to sustain yourself and you hollow out The country from the inside. Our our roads and bridges are collapsing. Our public libraries are being closed. We have a permanent underclass. Half the country lives in poverty, Um, and uh, and you can't at this point that force is so. And of course, Trump has now increased the military budget, the official budget, by 10%. Of course, it's much more than that when you count the 80 or 100 billion dollars for the security and surveillance apparatus and veterans affairs and our nuclear program. And we put it all together. It's a trillion dollars a year and it's, it's out of control. It's, it's, it is as Michael Hudson said, it's, it's eating the host. It's eating us from the inside out. And, and, and what is the response? It's not to build or rebuild a society so that there's any kind of, uh, focus on justice, economic justice. It's about bringing back the mechanisms of control from the outer reaches of empire. And I, I spent 20 years watching them work. These brutal, violent forms of control, suspension of civil liberties, wholesale surveillance, militarized police, murder with impunity, uh, militarized drones, it's all coming back to, quote unquote, the homeland, kind of Ironic choice of words or word, um, and that's what you know. Thucydides watched the same thing in the destruction of the city-states. That that, in his words, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others as an empire finally imposed on itself, and that's just what we're doing.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the other things, too, uh, about that process that you're talking about is that it's like, you know, it's like traveling through Dante's Inferno. It's it, while you seem to be going in a circle, you're going in an ever increasing downward spiral. And I think that that's certainly uh, appropriate in terms of characterizing what we're seeing now, because on the one hand, of course, uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama each in their turn expanded the, the, the police state. The infrastructure of the police state went increasingly militarized the police increasingly uh uh, building up the architecture of the prison industrial complex and all of these other repressive uh uh, appendages of the state but now they hand the keys over to trump who is really sort of a new level of that kind of aggression and so to me that's really what we need to be thinking about when we talk about sort of the continuity of empire
1: Right. So, I mean, for instance, I mean, Barack Obama's, first of all, his assault on civil liberties were worse than under Bush.
0: Yes, agreed. Agreed.
1: Uh, Whether it was reinterpreting the 2001 Authorization to Use Military Force Act as giving the executive branch the right to assassinate U.S. citizens, uh, whether it was the misuse of the Espionage Act to shut down whistleblowers, uh, the... Uh, passage of Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatis Act, which, until Obama signed this into law, prohibited the military from serving as a domestic police force. And uh, when Obama signed Section 1021 into law, which in essence allows the military to carry out extraordinary rendition on the streets of American cities of anybody the state deems to be a terrorist, hold them without due process indefinitely in military detention facilities when I sued Obama in federal court. We initially won, and then it was appealed, and we, yeah, the law was reinstated. But uh, the Judge Catherine B. Forrest, in her opinion, her 112-page opinion, wrote that in what this section does is allow the government to criminalize an entire group of people. And she brought up the plight of the 110,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in world war ii now obama did a signing statement that said that he wouldn't use it it doesn't have any validity well trump can use it yeah and these were all gifts of course let's be clear it wasn't obama it was the the deep state it was the national security apparatus that wanted it and the national security apparatus like the war industry gets everything they want you wouldn't be in the white House unless. That was the case. Um, They wanted it. They got it. I mean, in that two-year legal battle, when we appealed to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit wouldn't hear the case, wouldn't give me standing. We filed a petition or a cert to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court wouldn't take the case, so it's law. But in in that whole two-year process, the lawyers, uh, Carl Mayer and Bruce Afron, went to the Democratic leadership. Pelosi and others said, because they have to renew it every year. All you have to do is put into that section that this does not apply to U.S. citizens, and we drop the lawsuit. Well, of course they didn't do it because it was written for U.S. citizens, and all of all of these mechanisms have now been handed to Trump. Uh, and and should we undergo uh, another catastrophic terrorist attack, some kind of a crisis? It's just the flick of a switch. Yep. And Trump and Bannon have imposed. Uh, the most sophisticated and effective police state in human history. I mean, it already is, but it, 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 in comparison to what they would do, it looks benign.
0: Absolutely. And it's just a matter. It's just a matter of one incident. And that gives right. the pretext to do it. And it's it's essentially, you know, in, in real estate terms, it's turnkey, right? It's a turnkey police state. It's ready to go. The infrastructure yep. is built out. And one other aspect of that, and I just want to point, uh, bring this up before we go to break here. But one other aspect of it that is all I think also not discussed enough is that not only was, uh, you know, the the use of the military domestically uh, enshrined in law and normalized that way, it's psychologically normalized as well. I can tell you, I walk past... Uh, armed military every single morning as I walk from the train uh, up into lower Manhattan I go through Fulton Center the new billion dollar Fulton Center complex with all the luxury stores and there are military stationed at each and every exit armed military in full military uniform now multiply that by 365 days by year after year after year and you almost don't see them anymore
1: yeah well it's been a kind of John Ralston Saul describes the process over the last 4 decades as a a coup d'état, corporate coup d'état slow motion. Yep. And I think that's correct. I don't know that there's a single I don't think the election of Trump signaled the death of our democracy. Uh it 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 was a long, slow, steady demise. But along with that came as you correctly point out this kind of conditioning for internal military occupation. Now, let's be fair. If you're a poor person of color, uh, this has been happening uh, for a few decades because in marginal communities where we have what Marx would call redundant or surplus labor, uh, you have imposed many police states where people don't even get a trial. Uh, They're forced to plea out. They're given insanely compared to the rest of the world these incredibly long prison sentences and so so within these internal colonies as Malcolm X called them people long poor people of color long ago were stripped of all of their rights and are ruled through a reign of terror i mean that and i don't use that word lightly in terms of the indiscriminate police lethal police violence and the fact that Uh, the male population is uh, thrown into cages for decades. Uh, And I, you know, I teach in a prison, so I see the insanity of how people are picked up under RICO laws for crimes they didn't commit or uh, because you can't get a lawyer if you're poor. Uh, It's whatever, whatever the police want to give you is what you get. Uh, And there's no way you can fight it. So, we created both legal and physical mechanisms in internal colonies, and, and now we're seeing those mechanisms leach out into the wider society. It's actually something Hannah Arendt wrote about in The Origins of Totalitarianism, that you never want to have a segment of your population be treated as if their rights were privileges, because and that's what we've done to poor people of color. Uh, because they can't vote, you know, they can't get public housing, they can't get work, they're they're thrown into a criminal cast. Once they get out of prison, often before they're even in prison. So uh, once you create that kind of a system, then rights become privileges that can be revoked for everybody.
0: Indeed. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And uh, we'll pick it up right there on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio, we will be right back. Here on Counterpunch Radio I'm chatting with Chris Hedges uh, If you're not already reading the column every week I don't know what the hell you're doing on Mondays uh, Make sure you go to Truth Dig, Read uh, Chris's column Of course, uh, watch the program on Contact on RT And uh, find uh, all of his other work It's, I mean, it's definitely worth the time Okay, Chris, um, I want to ask you another question That is um, somewhat related to some of the s- things We were talking about in the first half of the program But it's 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 a word that we hear over and over and over again to the point where i mean it's it's literally almost makes me nauseous and that word is resistance and what i want to ask you is on the one hand what does resistance look like, uh, resistance against Trump look like in its actual practice versus the public relations brand of capital R resistance? And I think you know where I'm going with this and listeners know that I've I've talked about this before as well. Resistance is something that is an actual, uh, actually existing force versus resistance as something that is co-opted by the Democratic Party.
1: Well, that, that of course, has been precisely what's happening. Chuck Schumer and uh, other Democratic uh, officials, Cory Booker and others, can't wait to get to these anti-Trump rallies or the Women's March on Washington. Fast even Debbie Wasserman Schultz was in Washington uh, for the uh, Women's March on Washington. And uh, they are seeking, I think they have a heavy hand in the so-called indivisible movement, to co-opt—and this is, this is what the Democratic Party has done to the left since the Democratic Party uh, came into being—to co-opt uh, the movement on behalf of the Democratic Party elites. Um, I mean, the whole idea that Chuck Schumer, uh, who is the bad guy, uh, the guy who goes to Wall Street and gets all the money for the candidates yeah. is somehow our answer to Trump. Uh, and, and the Democrats, I think they're playing a very dangerous game. They have no strategy. They they don't stand for anything other than what they've always stood for, which is uh, serving corporate interests or certainly have stood for since the Clinton administration. Um and I, I think they're just hoping that Trump will implode and they will walk into the power vacuum. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's a, a terrible miscalculation on their part. Uh, but it's just uh, quite stunning to see how little they have learned from what's happening around them. Uh, again, the, the elevation of uh, uh, to the Democratic National Committee of uh, Paris um, is symptomatic of a party that doesn't. It's not a party. It, it 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 has the trappings of a party, but it is. It's really there. There's no actual people don't actually select the leadership of the party. It's pre-selected. Uh, it, it's mass mobilization and hyperventilating media, but it's not a real party. And this is why I just refuse to support Sanders when he ran as a Democrat, because I just was not going to sit around and watch him do what he did, which is become a force of obstruction by telling everyone that they should go vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, And now he's, what, the director of outreach for Chuck Schumer. I mean, it's almost farcical. Um, So the parties learn nothing. It's, um, It's essentially attempting to harness that energy that is there and um and, and and they hope to ride it back into power. That's their strategy. I I, I don't think it's gonna work.
0: I totally agree with you. And and this idea that the Democratic Party is really not really a party, I think, is also very much, uh, you know, spot on, because really, in effect, and and we've seen this, uh, certainly in the way that they torpedoed the Bernie Sanders campaign, which I also didn't support, but at least had some sympathies towards, uh, you know, that the Democratic Party is, in effect, uh, the the blue-colored arm of Wall Street. I mean, it really is just an appendage of finance capital. It serves finance capital in the most slavish way, and it doesn't even pay lip service to the institutions that it used to feel obligated to pay lip service to, not even lip service to to organized labor, to the trade union movement, to, to the extent that such a thing exists anymore, uh, barely any lip service at all to issues of poverty, to things like homelessness and all the other uh, trappings of you know uh, poverty in the United States. So in effect, they have sort of removed the mask and made themselves into the... The unflinching representatives of the elites.
1: Well, that was all orchestrated by the Clintons and Biden and others to to get to ride back into power. Very much what Tony Blair did with New Labour. It was a. It was they. Uh, they made it clear to Wall Street and corporate power that they would serve their interests. The rhetoric wouldn't change, but they were they would sell out their base, and Clinton did sell out the base. Uh, I mean, the first thing the Clintons did was roll back all of the gains that Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition had made within the Democratic Party in terms of diversity, in terms of issues, uh, began speaking again in that kind of coded racism, super predators, law and order, uh, etc.
0: And welfare then welfare mothers, welfare, welfare queens, mothers,
1: yep. right? Sister soldier and all that stuff, and rushing back to Arkansas in the middle of the campaign, so he can execute a mentally disabled man. I mean, I mean, these the Clintons, the Clintons are the the kind of uh, Godfathers of this process, and it worked. They uh, by the nineties, the Democratic Party had virtual fundraising parity with the Republican Party. Uh, but what was the price of that? The Republicans and the Democrats would start competing over to who could rewrite tax codes better on behalf for corporate corporate interests, uh, NAFTA, destruction of welfare. I mean, Hillary Clinton run around talking about mothers and children and uh, taking such an active role in the destruction of that welfare system, where 70 percent of the recipients under the old welfare system were children. The you know Glass Steagall, the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill. I mean, it's quite a list. And uh, at that point, I think by the end of the Clinton administration, the you had what you you reduced your two ruling political parties to issues that I think Freud would call the narcissism of minor difference over things like abortion or gay rights or. And these aren't political issues. I'm not saying they're not important, but they're not. It's anti-politics. Uh, and that and that infected the whole thing. I mean, they, the Clintons thought they were going to ride this gender issue to the White House. Um, I mean, this could have gone on forever. Uh, but I think most of the country, or much of the country, realized the the truth of Cornell West's characterization of barack obama as a black mascot for wall street and they just weren't ready to have a female mascot for wall
0: street yeah and isn't it isn't it telling that despite all of the you know the 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 dumpster fire that is the trump administration uh, i just saw a poll i think washington post or uh, gallup or whoever it was released uh yesterday or today, showing that Trump's Trump's approval rating is still significantly higher than Hillary Clinton. Despite everything that's come out in the last two months, Trump is still way more popular in the U.S. than Hillary Clinton is, which really should tell you something, considering how unpopular Trump is.
1: Right. Well, I mean, this gets into the issue of the media, because, of course, the media uh, is part of the problem and first of all i mean the 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 media created trump not only just in terms of creating his fictional celebrity persona as a great business titan on the reality show the apprentice uh but also because all they care about is money and so he got 23 times the coverage that bernie sanders got who was out there talking about issues uh but trump brought in the advertising dollars and uh the Even now, the press attempts, buying the democratic narrative, to uh, tarnish the Trump presidency by saying that Trump was elected because of Putin, or Trump was elected because of Comey. Um, I mean, this this whole idea that the Podesta emails, or that tens or hundreds of thousands of Clinton supporters woke up and read the Podesta emails and said, that's it, I'm voting for Trump, (laughs) or that they watched RT and voted for the Green Party, which is essentially what that six pages of the director of national intelligence report, is just absurd. But of course, the Democratic Party can't confront the truth, um, and that is that the neoliberal project um, that they had a tremendous responsibility for implementing uh, has imploded, and, and people are furious, and they have every right to be furious. Uh, but that can't be discussed when you work for a media company that's owned by General Electric or Viacom or Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. So, so the, I mean, the press. I think I read somewhere it was a uh, was a Monmouth County poll, and that uh, Trump had um, I want to say uh, like forty nine or forty six percent of registered voters believe Trump, as opposed to. About thirty six percent believe the press, and and that's very dangerous because any mechanism by which you can you can expose lies and build a national discourse around verifiable fact is destroyed, and I I certainly have no uh, uh, you know no. Um, or I certainly am, am am not in any way going to defend Trump, but in terms of his own lying, but the press is also completely culpable yep. in creating this situation uh, because it it lied as well, often a lie of omission, but that's still a lie, uh, and, and they're still doing it. And uh, if you destroy, I mean, Trump's and Bannon's goal is to destroy those institutions, uh, the press, the courts, that in a functioning democracy serve as arbiters of the truth, and uh, and and I think also universities. And those three institutions, I mean, the courts are now a wholly owned subsidiary of the corporate state. Obama's appointments were all corporatists; they were all corporate lawyers. Uh, universities are. Uh, many corporations purged academics who challenged neoliberal policies, imperialism, or uh, even attempted to decry the assault on democratic institutions. Those people weren't getting tenure. Um, and so those three institutions are all incredibly anemic through their own corruption. And uh, trump trump and bannon because of that have a very real chance of destroying them as effective bulwarks against uh, a kind of American fascist or authoritarian government and that and that but it but it goes both ways it's not just trump the, these institutions have failed us and and we're all going to pay for it
0: Absolutely. You know, um... Kind of hitting on a couple of points that you mentioned there, though, um, and, and this is really kind of a callback to what we were talking about earlier, where these previous administrations or the other the other party, where they basically hand a, a, a gift, a repressive gift to Trump. I think that that is something that we have seen very clearly, and this relates to what you were just saying, with Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party trotting out this now uh, odious term that we hear everywhere, fake news. News, right. Fake news was introduced by Hillary Clinton as a way of explaining away, you know, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, the collapse before one of the weakest Republican candidates in recent memory. It was fake news. It was the Russians. It was Breitbart. It was, you know, hackers in Macedonia or whatever it may be, you know, and and while that was you know, a way of her justifying her collapse. Now, fake news has become an incredibly potent weapon for Trump and for the Trump administration, and for any forces of reaction of the far right who want to essentially create their own alternate realities. This is where alternative facts comes from. Any uncomfortable or inconvenient coverage now can be labeled fake news, and on and on and on. I think that people can see what the logical conclusion of this is, and it's certainly the kind of prop that would make Goebbels and and, and Hitler weep with joy.
1: Right. Although I would say the media landscape in the United States has been dominated by fake news for decades, that you have these multi-billion dollar a year industries that are designed and managed by public relations firms and publicists and communications departments who have saturated, especially the airwaves, with lies on behalf of individuals, governments, corporations, and, and they understand, uh, as, as Lippmann said, how to manufacture consent, how to manipulate public opinion. Political candidates are just media, celebrity creations. They're manufactured personas, and, we're, and, and, not, and, and they're manufactured personas because the industry gets us to feel things about them and confuse how we're made to feel with knowledge. Uh, All the pseudo events which shape campaigns, all of which are pieces of theater, to shape and form our perception of reality, and we're hit with this stuff 24 hours a day, and it's all fake news. It's all fiction. It it, it, it's it's again, you know, we have been conditioned by, um, and the the press, of course, is complicit. It it doesn't give a voice to working men and women to ordinary men and women. It it caters to these pseudo events. And I I worked at the New York Times. I know journalists who for 30 years, all they've ever done is rewrite press releases. And they're some of the most esteemed people in the profession. News personalities who make million dollars a year and peddle gossip. Um, So it's either uh, a, a combination of kind of chattering endlessly about polls and strategies and presentation and tactics or guessing games about who's going to be appointed here or there, or it's the trivial and the banal and the emotionally driven stories that make us feel good about being Americans. I mean, the media landscape in this country, especially the electronic media, uh, has been the fertilizer by which we are thrust into this non-reality based world where you can believe whatever you want to believe.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with all of that 100%. My only point was that the 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 term fake news itself is now being I guess, you know, for lack of a better word, weaponized to the point where where previously, you know, a a press secretary or a president or whomever would have to at least address something whether it's just with flat denials or what have you The Trump administration and and Trump himself specifically seems to be able to simply dispute reality entirely and and describe anything it wants as fake news. I think that's something that's something unique. And it goes to what you were talking about a few minutes ago about Trump and Bannon and essentially the 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 destruction of what at one point was was, you know, called the media.
1: Right. So essentially created a media landscape whereby that was possible. Yes. The media's credibility was destroyed. Yes. And it destroyed itself. They became courtiers. They, as Matt Taibbi calls them, the guardians of the orthodoxy. But that's right. They're the guardians of the neoliberal and imperial orthodoxy. So uh, what's, you know, you get on these talk shows. Well, what are they discussing? It's, should we invade Syria with troops or should we just bomb Syria? Yeah. I mean, like, those are the two options. It's what Dorothy Parker once said about Catherine Hepburn's emotional range as an actress. It goes from A to B. Well, that's kind of what you see. And and people, critics of corporate capitalism or critics of imperialism uh, or, or critics of the East policy, and I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for The New York Times. I've never, I, I watch these people speaking about the Middle East. They don't speak Arabic. They've never been there. They don't, but they reinforce the dominant narrative and if you don't do that you're out. And that doesn't that that is as true on CNN as it is on the New York Times as it is on Fox News or anywhere else.
0: Absolutely. Um in the time we have remaining, I just want to ask you uh quickly you know, uh, before this evening and our chat here, uh, I had I had once had a brief exchange with you at a, an anti-war rally in, in uh, the winter of 2009, just about a month or so after Obama was inaugurated, and there was this rally against his planned expansion of the war in Afghanistan, which he openly touted, by the way, during the campaign in 2008 when everyone was hypnotized by hope and change, um, and... It was on the spot where, and listeners know this because I've told this story before, where just a couple of years earlier, we had tens of thousands of people protesting against Bush and the war in Iraq. And by 2009, on that cold winter day, there was literally probably 100 people there at the most. And... The reason I bring that up is because it was a moment of realization for me and I think for a lot of people about what the Democratic Party does to the left and did to the anti-war movement that that was vibrant during the Bush years. And the lessons that we learned from that, the the fact that the Democrats will always do that, that the Democrats destroy movements rather than building them, that they are the graveyard of social justice movements. That knowledge, I think, needs to be carried forward and really generalized today. And I'm not sure whether that's being effectively done or not. So I want to ask you, what will real resistance against Trump and against the Democrats, against the imperial consensus, what will that actually look like? It certainly can't be this sort of move on dot org, Soros funded, you know, uh, uh, left liberal uh consensus it has to be something else so what does that look like
1: well it'll look like what's happening or what happened at standing rock uh i think some of the more radical anti-fracking lying down on train tracks stopping pipelines uh it won't be characterized by this kind of boutique activism where everybody stays in the free speech zone is that what they call it and then. Yes. Uh, are politely taken to jail for three hours or something so they can go home and tell all their friends about it. It ain't going to look like that. Uh,
0: the, the Bill it, McKibben it, school of arresting?
1: Yeah, it's like chanting, gathering the White House, as they did on a weekend, and chanting, we are your supporters to Obama. its isn't going to get us very far. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and the state, uh, the state can handle that because that's just um a ritual. It's not real. What the state can handle, as we saw in Standing Rock, is when you actually disrupt the mechanisms of pillage and control. And then they get vicious. And that is all we have left. I mean what I, I went to the march on Washington. I've been in the marches on Trump Tower. And it was certainly my impression that most of those people were Clinton supporters or a lot of them. I mean, I saw a lot of Clinton signs that there was that they were Democrats that they uh, they wanted a return not to justice but to civility. Uh, they were part of the white elites, uh, especially on the East Coast, that have not suffered the way the working class has suffered and the way Poor people of color have suffered.
0: The bourgeois liberal activists.
1: The bourgeois liberal, exactly. So, um, a hope is going to come from those radical movements that that uh, don't um, that don't play the game, including the the game now being orchestrated by the Democratic Party. Uh, these we're going to have to rebuild movements, which is relational. Because of electronic media, you can create flash mobs of significant size, which is what happened the day after the inauguration, but then they they vanish like water vapor because there's no movement behind it and there's no vision. I mean, the whole indivisible movement has no vision other than maybe allowing Chuck Schumer to run for president with Cory Booker, uh, but that's not a vision, and we're going to I mean, we're starting from almost zero. Our our movements have been destroyed. Our liberal institutions have been destroyed. Um, I'm not wildly optimistic. I I think we still have to resist anyway, Uh, but that's only going to come by disruption and by surprising the state and by building, probably on a local level, political movements that can begin to pit power against power. Until we can do that, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. The, the, the politics is the game of fear. It, it, it's our job to make the powerful afraid of us. And if we don't have that ability to make the power elites afraid, uh, we're not going to succeed. I mean, all of the movements that opened up the democratic space in America—the abolitionists, the suffragists the labor movement, the communists, the socialists, the anarchists, the civil rights and labor movements, they all developed a critical mass and a militancy that forced the centers of power to respond. And all the platitudes about justice and equality and democracy are just that. Power only reacts when it's threatened, appealing to its better nature is useless because it doesn't have one.
0: Well and one other thing that I would interject there, and I agree with all of that, but uh, the word that I would also throw out there and sometimes it's sort of poo-pooed by a lot of people, is organization. Yeah. The state the state and the, the, the repressive apparatus is highly organized organized and functions like a machine. And until our resistance, you know, for lack of a better word is equally organized and equally able to focus itself with a, with a sort of precise vision, but also a broad vision for the future until we can do that. I mean, we're really spinning our wheels.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I would also raise the issue of violence and I fought the blacklock on this. Um, because The state, if there is a movement, a real movement in opposition, the state will seek to demonize it and isolate it. They must drive away the bulk of the population. So like we saw at Berkeley, uh, any violence against the state is immediately used by the authorities to justify greater forms of control and oppression. And that's a game they can win. That's a game they'll always win, and that we're always going to lose. We we have to—and this gets back to revolutionary theory, Crane-Brinton, Davies, and others write that any successful revolution only succeeds when a significant sector of the ruling elites, the civil servants, the police, in essence defect, refuse to defend a discredited regime. That was true in Russia when the Cossacks wouldn't quell the bread riots, and the Tsar saw it. Same in East Germany, which I covered, I was there, when Hanukkah sent down an elite paratroop division to crush the 70,000 people marching in the streets of Leipzig. They refused. Hanukkah was finished. Same thing I saw in Czechoslovakia, same thing I saw in Romania. And that, I'm not saying that, that what the police do is just or even defensible, um, but we have to understand what it is the state is going to seek to do. And we have to use the strength of our movement, which is that we are speaking, uh, or what you know Václav Havel calls living in truth, we are speaking a truth that frightens them. Um, and the, the more they use force, this was true in the civil rights movement, it's why King went to uh, Birmingham, Alabama, not Albany, Georgia, the more they use disproportionate force, the more it delegitimizes those in power the more it prompts a population that has remained passive to begin to support those movements. But most importantly, it creates internal divisions within the structures of power uh, that paralyze it. And I'm not a pacifist. I was in the war in Sarajevo. I I fully understood why you picked up a gun. I have covered Palestine. I I know that uh, you know Iraq. I know that when you are occupied, uh, you, 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 uh, especially a kind of form of colonial occupation, the only thing that's going to drive out the uh, colonizer or the oppressor is force. But revolutions are different animals, and, and I think it's extremely important because that's what we need. If we, otherwise we're finished. I mean, uh, if we don't rapidly reconfigure our relationship with the ecosystem, and even now it's bad. It's going to be bad. We're 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 done. Uh, and that, 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 that is a revolutionary process. It is about destroying the whole engine of corporate capitalism, indeed capitalism itself. Um, but we have to figure out, we have to be smart about how we're going to do it. Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but, but, um, I think we got to try.
0: Final point, And, and I, I just, I have to stress this since I have you here, um, one one thing that i think also needs to be kind of really discussed and 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 sort of internalized is the importance of defending what alternative media spaces we have because i think it's clear what the corporate media is how it serves power how it is a slave of finance capital and uh, and of the uh, the establishment and so the fact that we still have an alternative media on the left that we have spaces that we can still depend on to give us those critical insights and critical perspectives, at least as, fo- as long as the internet remains functional and somewhat free, we do have that. And I think, you know, you are a great example. Many others that I could point to are an e- excellent example of the importance of maintaining those spaces because as increasingly our space on the streets for free speech is taken away, we need to demand and defend that space online and in media.
1: Yeah, although I think Counterpunch was on the proper not list, right? Yes. And so was Truthdig. Yes. And and of course, what they're trying to do uh, through – and I have a show on RT, so they're going to demonize RT. Um, and they're going to tar uh, uh, websites like Counterpunch, like Truthdig, like Black Agenda Report as being witting or unwitting tools of Russian propaganda because the goal – is to completely silence those voices. It has nothing to do with RT and nothing to do with Russia. This is a mechanism by which, even though our voices have been pushed to the fringe, they can be silenced. And I think that the reason uh, that they want them silenced, um, and this just cuts across the boundaries of the elite, uh, the the Democratic Party is uh, as interested in silencing these voices as the Republican establishment. It's a uniformity. And I see that movement and I find it quite disturbing because we're already so marginal. I mean, you go back and look at public broadcasting in the 1960s, you could see Malcolm X on, imagine that, Malcolm X on uh, public television, uh, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, that's all gone. Public TV is run by the Koch brothers. NPR is run by McDonald's or the McDonald's heiress. And uh, and so that space that public broadcasting was supposed to protect, where voices and critics that were not beholden to corporate power could find a platform, is vanished. We've been pushed to the fringes. And I see this proper nod, and the Washington Post was complicit in this, and this kind of demonization of it as the mechanism by which they're going to try and 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 shut us down
0: it, it, precisely and that's why i think the the independent media especially on the left is in many ways one of our one of our most important battlefronts
1: yeah it's well it's it's extremely important um and uh but we're pretty beleaguered um uh you know even a lot of the supposedly left-leaning sites or have kind of filled themselves with the kind of tabloid trash to attract click clickbait and advertisers um so yeah i mean it, it's uh you have the pacifica stations you have amy you have, but there's not uh there's not a lot out there and when they decide to decapitate us which they would do in a crisis that's how they would instantly go after us um they, they really they really at this point want to create a system that's completely dark
0: yeah absolutely well um I wish we were ending on a on a lighter note than that, but I guess I guess that is where we'll leave it. Uh, Chris Hedges, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. It was a real pleasure speaking with you, listeners. Thank you as always. Please do uh, go to Truth Dig, read uh, Chris's column there every week. Obviously, uh, the show on RT as well, and his work all over the place. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. Listeners, thank you again, and I will speak to you next week.